Alrighty, everybody. We are back with Cibolo Creek Conversations for another conversation. My name is Wyatt Marchant, and I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Yeah. About to go on a bachelor party this weekend. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Your good friend Lance is mm-hmm. about to get married. Yeah. It was episode before last, I called him a grammar Nazi. So yeah. that, that would be the friend that I'm referring to there. Oh, yeah. That's true. Has he has that made it back to him that you are calling him out on the I podcast? know he watches, but he has been studying for this big medical test. He's going to be a doctor, something right. like that. But <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, and so I know he has had very little time to do much. Okay. And where is your uh, bachelor party? Austin. Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to have a party. Yeah, it's all right. It's a good place to visit. <laughs> I like Austin. I, I, yeah, I could see myself living in Austin. I really like Dallas, although my, uh, my sons do not agree with me on that. I haven't spent much time in Dallas, so I can't say anything. But I know that I would not want to live inside the city, like the downtown. Whenever people my age say they want to live in Austin, that's what they mean. They want to live in a box, on a, <laughs> on, so, which is like, if you live in an apartment, fine. It's just not for me, if I can help it. Yeah, I, I'm way past apartment life. Um, going to either of my son's apartments, I just feel very squeezed in by all of the population that lives so close to you. Yeah. But yeah. when I talk about living in a city, it wouldn't be about downtown. It would be about... Living in the suburbs of, yeah. a, of a great city is fun. But, you know, San Antonio has been awesome. We've lived here now for what, 26 years, and there's so much to love about San Antonio. I love the pace. Having lived in Dallas for a number of years, having lived not, not real far from Chicago and so spent time in Chicago and around New York City, um, the, pace of, the pace of big cities like that's crazy san antonio is i think the seventh something like the seventh largest city in the u.s but mm. it doesn't have that kind of pace and we live in the suburbs of san antonio of course but uh, has a really nice nice feel to it. it has to i think it has to do something with how compact a city is this city yeah, or, so like San Antonio is just so yeah. in Dallas even too. But like, if you go to like even Pittsburgh or obviously New York, it, they're so much more compact. It oh. just fe- everyone's moving the same amount, kind of, but there it's all closer together. Yes, yes. San Antonio doesn't feel quite as on top of each other as some of the larger cities that I've been in. Yeah, not at all, not at all. Yeah, if it was up to my wife, we'd probably live in Pittsburgh. So, you know, I. When I was a kid, I've been to Pittsburgh, but that was back when it was still kind of the steel mill, yeah. you know, center of the U.S., and it was not necessarily a, a pretty city. But I've heard that in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, it's really been revitalized and is really kind of a cool place. But Yeah, I was really surprised by it, just because I'd never been to, like, a, a big, bigger northern city. Right. And I was really surprised by it. Um, it was um, but very, it was much cleaner than I thought it would be. Yeah. See, back when I was a kid, that wasn't a f- the word for it because you had the steel yeah. mills and there was kind of like a black. Yeah, dust I saw pictures there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it looked horrible. Yeah, yeah. But we used to go there as a kid. I, um, I'd go there for Pittsburgh Pirates games. Oh yeah, we toured the stadium. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Well, it was probably the new stadium. Yeah. Yeah. 
I went to the old Three River Stadium. That was one of the big iconic stadiums of that era. Yeah, this one was the 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 Heinz Stadium's NFL Stadium, right? Heinz uh, Field. Yes, it's not even called that anymore. People lost their mind. That was a really big deal. We saw the sign getting taken down. That was a big deal. People in Pittsburgh. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But but no, it's really cool. It, it was a cool city. But I don't know if I'd want to live there. But who knows? But anyways, on to um, why we're here. We are continuing the discussion. Uh, you're kind of doing character studies, as you call them, um, centered around this idea of of encounters that people in the Bible have had with Jesus. Right. And we've done, or you've done the woman at the well, Nicodemus, um, and Matthew, and we've discussed those on here. And the discussion that we're going to talk about today is Zacchaeus. So um, what was kind of your main point with choosing Zacchaeus as one of these encounters that you wanted to address? You know, I, it, I really have been choosing, I think I shared this in the earlier podcast, that I really chose each of the characters based on not so much the point of their story as much as um, familiar stories, mm. even to people who haven't spent a lot of time at church. They have probably have a familiarity with some of these accounts. So I felt like I could kind of start um, without having to begin from the very beginning yeah. of each of them. But um, I, I kind of hesitated doing Zacchaeus right after I did Matthew because they're both tax collectors. And I I didn't want people to think I was um, just choosing the same topic. But um, I felt like I, I went ahead and went with Zacchaeus because I... I had just shared a lot of information the week before about uh, tax collectors, and I thought while that information was still fresh in people's minds, I could kind of step off from there. But, um, yeah, Matthew, I just had a different, we just had a different takeaway and then came to Zacchaeus, and I thought, I thought it provided a great discussion about a topic that I don't think it's handled quite as well or quite as thoroughly as it needs to be. Yeah. And that topic that you kind of centered on was uh, the balance between faith and works, correct? Yes. And, yeah, I agree. There's, it's not really discussed. At least both of them aren't. You either get labeled legalistic or you get labeled... Um, licentious. Licentious. That's the word. Evidently. Oh, really? Oh. That you have a lot of license. In, oh. You give yourself a lot of license in how you behave now the word licentious actually has kind of a very sexual nature to it It, it's generally describing kind of sexual license but it can also mean something broader in that you just give yourself permission to do what you please it normally ends up sexual so (laughs) (laughs) let's be real when you talk about it yeah yeah yeah. exactly at least that's what freud would say um (laughs) but yeah and so okay but uh yeah you either get labeled legalistic or licentious yeah, did I just teach you a new word? I've heard it, but I didn't know that that was... Oh, okay. I didn't know its definition, so I didn't know it applied there. I don't there. typically introduce you to new words. You're usually introducing me to... Well, that's just if I don't ask what the means. Oh. Okay. I'm just playing like I know. <laughs> I use the context of the sentence to put it together. To try to make something yeah. up. <laughs> I think I understand it enough to be able to continue this conversation. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. But yeah, you get labeled one or the other. Um, you don't really get a whole lot of... 
in between. Why do you think that is? Is it just a difficult topic or? It's a difficult topic to explain with balance. Mm. So I was sharing that, you know, I grew up in this setting that had a, a very rich theological tradition. I mean, theology was king. I mean, there, I mean, it was enormous amount of importance on theological accuracy. Um, and part of that accuracy insisted that we had to make sure people understood you're not saved by works. And so because there's such a, you know, aversion to misleading people that they could be saved by works, then in my background, there was just so much effort made to keep the two topics as far apart as possible. So you could talk about faith and you could talk about belief or you could talk about, you know, obedience and works, but you could never let them get too close to each other because you might confuse people. And I think that's where we've done a disservice. We've, we've created such a distance between them that people don't see the relationship and we rarely ever talk about the relationship between the two. And so I think, I think the answer is some sort of a balance, a theological balance between the two. But um, if you're really, really nervous about misleading people into thinking that they can be saved by their works, then you tend to, you know, you tend to push that discussion about works far away. Yeah, and it, it's funny because whenever you were saying how you came from a very, very uh, a culture that that emphasized good theology, mm-hmm. to me, and and I and I know this is incorrect thinking, but to me, that would now be called legalistic. Like even just the idea of making sure that everyone in your congregation understood what you say is correct theology. Right. Well, there's no question the background that I came up from is very legalistic or was mm-hmm. at the time my experience was. And so it was, it was not only you couldn't mislead people into believing that you could be saved by works, but once you were saved, then they placed a lot of emphasis on works and not only, not always things that might be described in the scriptures there was lots of behavioral modification about how you should live your life as a christian it was very very works oriented and if you didn't do those works right then your salvation or the legitimacy of your faith was questioned and you're made to feel bad for it so um yeah this idea of insisting on a certain way of believing it runs the risk of becoming legalistic. And what's the risk the other way? It, the other way what? I guess the opposite side of that, the licentiousness. Uh, yeah, so then, then you just got to, you have a whole host of people who believe, well, I said the prayer, or I acknowledge, you know, certain bullet, proofs, uh, bullet points of like declarations of faith, Jesus was God, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I did all the things, but now, because I don't really understand the place of works and all of that, then what happens is people just end up living their life any way they want. They don't really pursue a dedicated or devoted journey of following Jesus into the way of Jesus' life. 
So you just have people who don't really understand any responsibility or accountability to conforming their life to the pattern of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, like I have, and I've brought this up before, but I have a lot of friends, and not all of them say this, but they say it. It's implied by the way they live. Um, I'm not saying that I'm better, but <clears throat> it, at least I understand whenever I fail, right? Yeah. Um, knowing you're failing is at least you're you're somewhere at least, but <laughs> it's a it's kind of a whole. Um, we'll all get serious about that later on, right. kind of thing. Um, it was college. I'm gonna have fun in college. Yeah. What's wrong with that type of thinking? Is it obviously we would say that it's incorrect, but say somebody says that to you, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, let's do 21, so that way they can be legal while they're doing these things. But let's say they're 21 and they say that to you. What? I'm not saying you'd argue with them, but what would just kind of be your thoughts? What would kind of be a response if you're going to try to be like, you know what, that's probably not the best idea. Yeah. Um, hmm. I probably... Again, this is unrehearsed, so just off the top of my head. <laughs> I would say two things. I'd go, do you genuinely appreciate what Jesus has done on your behalf and what your response to that might be? Um, basically, you're taking you're taking liberty with the enormous amount of grace that was offered to you when Christ gave his life for you. So to sort of say, well, thanks, but I'm going to go ahead and just continue living the way I want is really kind of snubbing your nose at the significance of what Christ's sacrifice on your behalf is about. Um, and and I, 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 I think I can genuinely say this. If you're snubbing your nose at the significance of what Christ has done on your behalf, there may be reason to be able to to question, was that faith legitimate? Was it real? Was it sincere? Yeah. And so I, I think that's one of the interesting discussions is, do I just have to say the right words or do I have to believe it to the place of having a difference or making a difference in my life? The second thing I think I would say to them is, well, you will answer for the life that you have lived for Christ, you're 21, you're taking an awfully big risk of thinking you're going to make it to 30. So what if you don't? If you're thinking, well, I'll get serious about it when I get married and have kids. Well, that may be 10 more years before that all happens. So what if you don't make it through those 10 years? You're going to stand before God. And while you may See, this is where it gets kind of clunky. Mm -hmm. While you may be safe, you still have a life to answer for. Or, and this is kind of where the works part becomes such an important part of the discussion, it may be the time that you learn that your faith in Christ wasn't sincere. And that's way too late in the ballgame to find out, oh, I guess I should have been a bit more diligent about all of this. Mm. And that that's the point I'm I'm trying to reconcile is 
while I don't believe you get saved by works, that's clear, saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. I happen to think faith is a bit more active word than simply believing. Faith is believing and then responding. It's a package. Um, I'm, I think the best way I've learned to, I guess, explain it is our works become a proof of the faith in its legitimacy. And so it's like James asked, can a faith without work save you? And I think the answer is no. Mm. And he says, faith without works is dead. So there's no life to that faith. The faith that Christ calls us to is a life-giving faith. So I just don't, I don't think that a faith in Christ is sincere without the accompanying expressions of obedience. Now that obedience may be terribly immature, inexperienced. It may be that it's not been mentored well. I get that. I'm not trying to decide somebody's, the legitimacy of somebody's conversion. But what, what you just described is the person who's kind of just kind of nonchalantly saying, ah, ah, I'll get to it someday. I'll get serious about it someday. And I go, yeah, you can't come to the cross and take its benefits and then walk away thinking you're not going to take this seriously. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's possible. Yeah, and that you went kind of exactly where I was thinking in my head is, well, not that we can necessarily question, like you said, not that you can necessarily question the legitimacy of one's salvation. However, I think Jesus' statement, uh, whenever he says, you know, there's going to be some people, paraphrase version, I mean, some people uh, that come to me uh, and I'm going to say, you know, away from me, I don't, I never knew you. Right. Well, I think it's also possible that perhaps we never knew him. And I think that, like, whenever he, whenever Jesus would say that to those people, hey, I never knew you, then that would even show that, that they didn't really know him because they thought that they were just going to be able to get in if they said a thing. Yeah. And I think that that's why it is so important for us to understand what Jesus is saying, what he taught, who he is, um, and how he balances how, how the different aspects of God are balanced. So that kind of goes back to that uh, love and justice or uh, mercy and wrath even, is that you don't necessarily even know them. Like you're, you might be following somebody, but you, that, that, that person you're following looks nothing like Jesus, right? Right. right. And I think there's a lot of that that's kind of going on nowadays um, is that, a lot of people don't have a good idea of who Jesus is. Yeah, what I was just sitting here thinking is sometimes it's, it feels like in preaching the message of salvation gets described in a very transactional kind of way. So Jesus did this for you, then if you'll acknowledge it, then he'll provide these benefits. It's a very transactional kind of thing. And yes, there is a, an enormous spiritual, eternal transaction that takes place. I get that. But I, I don't know that we always describe the personal nature of the fact that Jesus is this real being, 
And at the time, as a human on this earth, he literally suffered excruciating torture on your behalf, emptied himself of life, like died for you as a payment for the sin that you're guilty of. And so to simply acknowledge the transactional part without any, any connection to the personal part of that, um, I think is where we, we get a little sideways in our understanding. Yeah. I was just thinking earlier, um, it's like walking whenever, whenever you're talking about being nonchalant, it's like walking up to the cross your name is on it, but Jesus is in your stead, and you're going, yeah, yeah. thanks. Yeah, and and this is what happens. Again, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, 50 years of experience in church and sitting under a lot of preaching. Um, what happens is we describe, in keeping faith and works separate from each other, and we over here on the faith side of the thing, we... We make, we make this decision to invite Jesus into your life such a um, wonderful deal. Like if you invite Jesus into your life, if you'll believe that Jesus died for your sin and you say that you accept it, well, you get your sins forgiven. Um, God becomes your father. You become one of his sons or daughters. Um, the Holy Spirit this is the transaction. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, and he's there to help you. And um, you, you'll experience blessing that God has for his children. And you get to go to heaven when you die. It's all, it's, it's sort of like, and if you act now, you get the Ginsu knife set too. You know, it's all <laughs> these benefits, and it's all described as what's in it for you. And yes, that is part of the offer. That is part of the message. But you don't typically hear on that side of the equation, you don't typically hear, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Love your enemy. Repent. The word repent repentance yeah, you, is one that's just kind of gotten yeah, out of the vocabulary. You don't, you don't hear repent, meaning the way that you're living before this transaction takes place will no longer be acceptable. He's inviting you to a different way to live. And so we'll, let's just take the 21-year-old as the example. So if, if before you come to believe this transaction, let's say you're sexually involved with a number of partners or you know, with your, your girlfriend or boyfriend, well, repentance calls you to something different. Uh, the words of Christ and the teaching of Scripture is that's not an appropriate expression of sexual intimacy outside of the confines of marriage. So um, he's calling you to repentance. He's going to confront you about that way of behavior. And if um, the transaction is sincere, he's calling you away from that but we don't we don't talk about that we don't talk about repentance in as thorough of a way as we ought to when we're delivering the message of belief in jesus we talk about yeah you have to repent of your sin but we don't really explain and pull that apart for people um 
people just think that it just means apologizing for it. Yeah. A lot of the time. That's a great way to say it. Like, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I feel bad for it in this instant because I won all the benefits. But now I have all the grace, so. Yeah, but now you told me my sins are forgiven and, and nothing can keep me from going to heaven because I've now said the words. And so now I'll just go back to living my life the way that I want. Have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, that I think is extraordinarily common uh, belief. And so I guess to the person that would just say, is it kind of the same thing to the person that would just say, well, I do believe Jesus died for my sins. Um, I did put my faith in him. And so I know that he's going to forgive me of these things. And so, I'll just carry on my way. Is that essentially the same? What is what is the error in their thinking there? The error in their thinking is... The offer is free, therefore it requires nothing of me. Mm. And I think, yes, the offer is free but he's asking for your life. He's asking for your heart in return. And I'm using the word heart to describe like the sum total of everything that you are. So be prepared to give that. Do you think that Jesus would, in our uh, vocabulary, do you think Jesus would use the word that his offer is free? Yeah. Uh, it depends on the... I think that he would say exactly what you just said. Just with the, like, because it can, almost, it can get kind of confusing, I think, maybe. And I could be wrong. What do I know? But, like, he even said, well, whoever... He said the... He said the, well, he, you're going to give your life over part to begin with. He's like, well, if you lose your life for my sake, well, then you'll have it. But if you save your life, well, you'll lose it. And so it's like, hey, up front, he's like, hey, you're going to have to sacrifice your, yourself for my sake. Yes. I, I don't think Jesus was as um, elusive in describing the back end that we are when it comes to making it all sound so wonderful and free. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus was a lot more direct about it comes with a cost. But there isn't anything you have to do to secure it. I did all of that. Now I'm inviting you to follow me. And that comes with cost. But we we tend to kind of avoid, because that sounds harsh or hard, and we just want them to accept Jesus because we want them to go to heaven when they die. And and we want to make sure that, you know, we get lots of people making a decision. I think Jesus was far less concerned about the number of people who made decisions to follow him as he was about the quality of the decisions people were making. Churches, and, and you know, I guess you could look at kind of, I mean, this maybe always been around, but if you look over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years of church history, there's been this kind of, performance metrics about like how many people raise their hand or say the prayer or come forward or check the box that they got saved and part of feeding that whole quest for numbers is make it as easy and as attractive as possible so let's tell them it's free let's tell them their sins are all washed away let's tell them they go to heaven when they die let's tell them they become god's son or daughter 
but let's not tell them the hard part. Let's not you know, show them the fine print. Let's just make sure that they sign the card or say the prayer. And I think that's misleading a generation of people. I agree. I And I think now, kind of coming off the back end of our topic of deconstruction, now it's not even, well, I guess maybe in the past there, there was more legalistic churches and then there was more licentious churches and that it's just... Maybe it's just say harsh and soft as far as like how they deliver that message. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think that both of them probably still agree. Let's just say, I think most would probably still agree on both ends. It's just how the tone of the yeah. presentation was harsher. Now I think that there's a growing group that just think that, well, if you say the, the truth of the matter, well, it, they don't even see it as being true anymore necessarily. Like, they just think that it's just the, it's a love above all, back to that. Um, that's their only closed-hand doctrine or understanding. Oh, that they don't let loose of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the last 10 years, what's been happening in kind of the intellectual and mental um, categories of a society I think we're approaching a whole new era of trying to explain the truth of the gospel to people. Now, there's there's no objective truth. I mean, society's basically saying there's no objective truth. There's no fixed anchor of what's right or wrong. I think I think you go back in history, it, that wasn't as. Um, popular of a frame of mind as it is today we no. spent we spent the last 50 years demolishing that kind of thinking and therefore um now we're now we're faced with all new challenges about trying to make the message of the gospel compelling and relevant to our society and i see it in a lot of I see it in in a way that we don't want people to feel shamed, and I think that that's good that they should that no one should walk into a church and be shamed. And shame may not even be the right word, but perhaps ashamed is is a better way of saying it. Um, and definitely feeling convicted of things that they have done. But again, now we're seeing that as not being loving because yeah, because we're telling them that they were wrong perhaps. Um, yeah, I've actually been trying to sort that out for me as a communicator and I, I hate shaming and guilting. I think those are really, um, those, they're not noble ways to share the message of Jesus. Um, I don't think that was the purpose of them. So the only way that I've sort of landed on it is rather than, you know, getting up in people's faces and shaming them or guilting them, which I think are not attractive ways to do it. I, I've really come to more understand um, approaching it from the danger that you're in. Mm. So... 
um, I'm not shaming you. I'm trying to let you know there's grave danger for your failure to respond to this truth. And that danger is on this side of the grave. That's um, the danger of the consequences that come from a life that ignores a truth. And then the eternal consequences are very severe. And, and so I, I'm trying to cultivate the kind of heart and mind that when I talk about the hard things that in the past have been fashioned in a way of shaming people to try to get them to act, I'm trying to think of ways to lovingly and sincerely caution them about the danger of ignoring the truth of God's word. And again, that's hard in our current society because people don't even place any clout in God's word much anymore, non-Christians. Um, it's interesting, I was watching, a, I don't even know how it happened, I guess maybe scrolling through Instagram or something, but uh, these clips of uh, Billy Graham preaching back when he was young and in his heyday. And it was interesting watching him talk about, you know, the classics, the classics of those, you know, 50s and 60s eras when he was preaching. Uh, I guess the 70s. But he would talk about, he would talk about drinking and smoking and lust and adultery and, you know, kind of those, you know, classic expressions of um, immoral behavior. And I... I didn't, I didn't see him speaking to them in ways to shame people. He was warning them about there's this holy, righteous God, and he has declared, he has declared what is right. And our refusal to submit our ways to it places us in grave danger. Yeah. And... Again, nowadays, if you say anything hard, it's interpreted as harsh. And then if you're harsh, that's hatred, right? So any, any discussions about hell or penalty or condemnation or wrath, that comes across as harsh. Um, and therefore, you're being hateful in how you're delivering it. And I think there's a point of the preacher, the communicator has to check his heart or her heart, really understand their motives for the way they're packaging the, the message. And they have to answer to God and not to, you know, the woke community. They have to answer to God and they have to say, no, God, I wasn't trying to shame or intimidate or, you know, embarrass or um, guilt anybody. I was honestly trying to to warn them of the danger they're in. If they interpret it that way, I, I can't be responsible for that. Now, there are preachers who will intimidate and guilt people and shame them into all sorts of things, and yeah. it's, it's really unbecoming. It's gross. And so, yeah, that's out there. But for me personally, I'm, I'm trying to be I'm honest to my intentions when I speak about hard things. And ultimately, 
I think it's, it is an expression of love to warn somebody of the danger that they're in. We would do that with our kids. If, you know, if, if we could see the rattlesnake on the sidewalk and our kid thinks it's a stick, I would hope that we'd love that child enough to say, honey, don't pick that up. Don't go near that. That's just the kid being creative. Don't ruin his creativity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come on now. Exactly. And that, that's kind of the mentality that's out there when it comes to biblical truth is you're just stepping on people's fun and creativity and self-expression and you go, well, that's not really the point. I just know that there's coming a day when you will stand before a God of truth and, and he's, not, he's not subject to the changing winds of society where he'll go, oh, that was the 70s. I'm going to let you off the hook. I, he's, he's not going to do that. Oh, you were a hippie. You were all wrapped up in the. He's not going to let you do it. Or you, you were a millennial and that stuff wasn't important anymore in society. He, no. It's going to be a really rude, harsh awakening to stand before the eternal and infinite holy God of the universe and give an account. And one thing I'm absolutely positive positive of is the accounting we will give will be completely consistent with what was revealed in the scriptures so as unpopular as the bible might be or as you know as much abuse as it's taking by way of you know dismissing its claims and its credibility i still believe well it's really important stuff to know yeah yeah like i said that's why i'm always so weary about dismissing something as a cultural statement, something in the, uh, like a command or a statement in the Bible as a cultural statement or just a cultural norm of the time. Yeah. And that's just how I'll dismiss it. I'm very careful. I would just rather err on the side of not doing that because it's like, well, then it throws everything else up into the air. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. There are some, There are some situations in the Scripture that were obviously culturally bound they're not being expressed the same way these di- these days but the principles yeah are timeless so like if you take romans what is it romans 13 and 14 and paul's addressing the church at rome about meats offered to idols well at least here in the united states i don't know of people who are taking lambs and bulls and goats and sacrificing them on the idol and then deciding whether they can enjoy that for dinner that night. (laughs) So we don't have that going on, but there's a principle there that is timeless about the things that we should participate in or not based on their association with beliefs. Yeah, so yeah, I guess I was, that is correct. I guess I was referring to like just straight up do nots or do's. Right. Like, they'll just dismiss it because the culture's accepted it. Essentially, like, I see, like, there's two extremes between kind of this. I think it's pretty good. You can either become very, very, very like the church or like, uh, like the culture, which is just always going to tend towards progressivism through time. It yeah. just has. Um, and there's sways back and forth, but it just keeps going further and towards it. And then there's also like, uh, what was that church? What was that notorious small church um, that would like go and protest f- at oh. funerals? 
what is it heritage or something yeah i know something exactly. baptist church yeah but <clears throat> that's like the other extreme and it's like well i don't want to become either side of that right and and we're all kind of i'm seeing a lot of us become i don't know i just instantly become very very skeptical whenever yeah. something is starting to sound like the message put out by either side of that i'm just like uh yeah like okay loving acceptance we should accept everyone that's starting to sound a whole heck of a lot like something else it's starting to sound like the culture a lot yeah maybe there's something else behind that or hey we need to seclude ourselves from society these people are sinners they're um we can't touch them. They're disgusting, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so you have these two extremes, and we can kind of see the the error of both. But what happens then is the church gets kind of dodgy, like how do I not err on either side of the extreme? But then trying to dodge them both, the, it's possible for the church to have no message. Or to have no, you know, line by which it defines its truth. Or the that, for sure. I think that it's almost, maybe I'm wrong, you've seen it more cases. I would say it could be even more likely that whatever that current congregation is pulls it one way or the other. Whichever way the people that attend lean, because they're the ones that are going to complain. Oh, yeah. You know? And so whichever way that current congregation leans is going to pull it one way or the other. Granted, the church will die with that amount of people, but they'll pull it to which grave it lays its head in. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I agree with you. The people will pull it. I like, I'm curious about that expression. Um, in an effort not to offend either side, yeah. whichever one seems to be getting offended, it will push them. Yeah, the, the pastor's... The pastor's a factor in that, and it depends on the kind of courage or um, confidence that he or she has about towing a line. You hear this a lot. I I don't know that Sybil has ever been subject to it, maybe. Um, you'll, You'll hear of pastors who... They'll take the hard line on a topic or on a subject, social subject, and they're being accurate or consistent with the principles of Scripture. And it makes the congregation uncomfortable. And then the congregation does uh, two or three things. Um, they make his life miserable with a lot of, you know, criticism. And, you know, kind of tattle on him to whatever church leadership's in place to which he answers. Or they uh, stop giving, because that can be a huge kind of manipulation tool. Um, so now the church is in financial, you know, problems. And eventually, it whether it ever gets said this way or not, well, if you would stop preaching about those things, then we'll give our money back. Leverage, yeah. So now he's 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 moving away from taking the position because of the financial implications, or people start leaving the church, and then that's never popular, because 
that has a financial implication to it, but it also has a, you know, uh, a popularity in the community or, or whatever. Um, again, it goes back to this performance sort of um, idea that, you know, the, the bigger the church, the better. And so, yeah, the preacher can cave. The preacher, the pastor can cave to you know, kind of the will of the people. Um, and that's, I think, again, where churches sort of lose the salty of you are the salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. Loses the savor savoriness of the message. Well, I think that's kind of what, whenever, you, whenever works are detached, it takes away the um, city on a hill aspect. Mm-hmm. of the faith because well it doesn't look any different there's no lights yeah you know and and i think that's why like a billy graham it's like well he was out there saying things that people would probably consider to be harsh i have a hard time believing that all the people that would show up to him this is back when he needed to attend things would show up to watch him and whenever he's teaching thing he was teaching on drinking or lust or whatever these hardline issues and they were all, all those people just already agreed with him no no, but it was something that they found to be um, something calling. There was something there that was different than, <clears throat> yeah, than what they were currently living, and they knew something was wrong. Which I think most people know something's wrong. Granted, there's some people that that don't, uh, and I don't even know if that's necessarily their fault. Um, because we've been so careful, but I think that down in our hearts, if we really considered it, whenever we're living in sin, we know that those things are at least not the best. There's probably yeah. an icky feeling to some degree. Um, well, enough people, not everybody, but enough people involved in the things that are harmful and unproductive in their life, they're, they're, they're in the backwash. They're reaping you know, the consequences of those choices. And they have moments of clarity like, my life wouldn't be this if it weren't for that. So I, I know it's wrong, but it's the struggle to move away from it. And they, you know, outside of Christ, they don't have the power to move away from it. Um, and the thing that I'm, I hear a little bit nowadays, not as much as I would prefer, of course, but, I hear I hear of teachers who are saying I'm putting my faith in the principle of scripture that the truth sets people free. So I'm going to speak the truth as unpopular as it is in the hopes that God will honor his word on my behalf. He speaks the truth. I'm holding out freedom for people so I'm going to continue to hold fast to that that belief. Yeah. Like, you know, I think I was telling you a couple weeks ago on our podcast, I, I did a message recently that dealt with Romans 1 and mm. talked a little bit of, just very briefly, it was passing comment about, you know, the truth of God's word. And, and we touched on... LGBTQ, and I had a woman come up afterwards, and she was very 
put out with me and confronted me about saying those things and had her son and his friend been there they would have been very very offended and it it wasn't the place or the time to get into literally it's after the service right um it wasn't the time or place to explore it all with her but um she said some things that were pretty hurtful and so later in the day while I was kind of processing that the assurance that I was giving myself was the truth will set them free and so if I truly believe that the deception that's active in the heart of a person who's chosen a lifestyle contrary to God's design if I truly believe that sin has deceived them then my hope should be that they could be set free from that deception. Mm. And that will only come with conforming their life to the truth of God's word. So I need to be courageous enough to toe the line of what I understand the truth to be as God defines it, regardless of how unpopular or whatever the reaction might be. I have, I have to be consistent with declaring it. I don't have to be a jerk about declaring it. I don't have to be insensitive, you know, unduly insensitive about it. Um, I can be careful. I can be creative, not so creative and careful that you end up just, you know, touching around the edges and not really going to the hard stuff. But um, I have to be consistent with it because ultimately I answer to God for what I have to say. And I don't answer to her. And I even think that how you say it too, because if you, if a, if a teacher or a pastor gets to the point to where they're trying to make something not sound like what it says, or yeah. they're trying to make it look prettier, um, well, that throws into question how, how you view the sufficiency of the word. But also it's like God's going to be like, well, I didn't say it good enough. Yeah. <laughs> like well, it's yeah. right there. Why did we need all this other fluff? Yeah, that's what I meant. Like you don't yeah. want to package it in such a creative way that you end up avoiding it. I don't, I don't want to be about that. It really comes back to the motive yeah. of the preacher's heart because that will, in in the heat of the moment, that will come out in his or her tone of voice, facial expression, body language. I, you know, I think people can tell when somebody's being mean or mad. It comes out. Or there's somebody who's genuinely passionate and compassionate about what they're trying to warn you of. And they can tell that in your face. They can tell that in your tone of voice. So, yeah, I think the hard things can be said if they come from a good heart of what's best for the people who are, you know, listening, then I think the body language and tone of voice is going to communicate that. Well, I love what you said too, because I find a lot of the time whenever, even whenever I find somebody <clears throat> that I would, that I would call mean or, or, or too harsh is that they aren't detaching themselves from it enough. Like they're getting 
angry. Well, why are you angry? Yeah. Right? Like, you can be frustrated because... Uh, you can be frustrated because of things, but why are you angry? Like it, you can you can feel it directed, and they're detaching themselves from it rather than just letting scripture defend itself. It's like you're going to war. They're they're going to battle for this principle in scripture, and it's like, hey, teach what it says, and then you you can say why it's important or or why um, it's applicable, but. Detach yourself from it from that aspect. And you said, I think just the other week, it's like, hey, this isn't my kingdom. Or like, I didn't write this rule. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but I'm going to, I'm going to respect it. Right. Yeah. I've, especially with the audience that we serve and we serve an audience that we're trusting and have worked toward creating a place for seekers, people who don't believe in all of it and are trying to figure it out or ask questions of it. So I've learned a, a bunch of sincere ways to sort of um, remove myself from being um, the hateful, spiteful one. It's I'm just telling you what I understand. And I almost always qualify that by saying, you may disagree with me, that's fine, but I'm encouraging you do your own study, do the own, your own work, and come to your own conclusion about it, and then you'll live with the consequences of what you've chosen to believe. Just like I'm living with the consequences of what I've chosen to believe, I invite you to do the same. I'm just trying to help by providing some sort of a perspective. I, I, I have never liked positioning myself as having it all figured out or the final word on the matter. That's just not really my personality. And I'm finding that that sort of um, permission to take myself out of the equation and just I'm sharing with what I understand. I'm sharing with you what I understand, and I give you the permission to study it for yourself. I, I feel like that sort of... Um, humility or that sort of openness about it tends to make it more compelling. Yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. Whenever somebody tells me, well, that's just what you believe about that. Oh, it bugs me to no end. <laughs> and I'm like, fine, fine. Believe differently. But can you at least read that verse for me? In fact, read me these five verses. Cause I'm trying to be better about if I'm going to make a point, I want it to both be said in the old Testament and the new Testament. I'm kind of on that systematic Train, because I've seen people just <laughs> toss out the Old Testament, so I'm like, maybe it's there for a reason. Anyways, boy, it bugs me. I'm like, just read these to me. It, it, fine, believe what you want, but you have to say these words. Say them. You're dodging me. Say these words, please. Can you just read along with me? Oh, sorry. <laughs> now I'm all riled up. Yeah, I can see you. It's all kinds of energy. Can't stand it. Over there. Well, that's just what you believe, and then look away. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, so some of that's personality type. Yeah, that's me for sure. <laughs> some of it is situational. Um, I, I read a quote today. This isn't exact, of course, but the quote was essentially saying, maturity is the ability to walk away without setting someone straight. Yeah. And again, it's situational. There's, I think there's moments where 
you have to press the issue. And there's the time and the privacy of the all clo- of it. The closer say, I am to someone, the more I think that's allowed. And yeah. also, if they'll tell me actually what they think, I normally don't do it. If they just say no, that's when I get upset. Yeah. Yeah, so if I feel like I'm in a a situation that allows me to press, yeah. I'll press. And I'll even do that, you know, with humor. Well, you tell me what you think yeah. of me. You know, yeah. Be playful about it. Um, and then other situations, I'm like, this is so Proverbs right now that it's it would be a waste of my time. It's what Jesus would call casting pearls before swines. Yeah. They're just not in a position to have a dialogue with you. They want to debate or they want to argue or they dismiss. And so you just don't spend kind of the emotional energy pressing into it because it's just not going to be profitable. Yeah. Yeah, and I would almost never press someone I'm unfamiliar with or someone who I know also does not uh, claim to, you know, follow Jesus in the same... Like, we're, we're not in the same... If we're, if we're in the same vein, well, then I think that both of us can hold each other to a higher account. Okay. You know? Yeah. We can hold each other to fire. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah. No, I, I agree yeah. with you. And so... It just... I don't... I don't I normally don't let my anger out with them, <laughs> but I will vent on the backside like I'm doing right now. Like on my podcast. Also. On my podcast. <laughs> so if anybody watching does that to me, just on purpose. Be forewarned. Be forewarned. really bugs Wyatt. It really bugs me. They just don't want to, And then I'm the one saying, well, you just don't want to say you're wrong. He's like, you, uh, it's the opposite, friend. Oh, yeah. boy. Anyways, um, how... How does one in their life, I guess, balance the idea or balance what should they, how do you balance what uh, faith and works in in your actual life? So like an understanding of it makes sense, but actually living it out, what does that look like? Um, Just kind of give a picture of what that looks like and maybe kind of how that plays itself out. Yeah, it comes down to literally millions of different dynamics yeah. <laughs> throughout the course of your, your day, your week, your month. And so what it looks like is, what, what's that phrase? Uh, character is what, who you are when no one's looking. Um, so obedience looks like you're home alone watching television. You have choices about what you're going to watch. So a person who's wanting to demonstrate that they're, who's wanting the proof that their faith is sincere, they make the choice, I'm not going to watch that trashy thing. I'm going to watch something more constructive. Okay, so that's, that's a choice about how they're going to spend their time. Um, the person at work, they know, I can tell this customer basically a lie. They'll, not, they'll never know. Or we can pick up the pieces afterwards. I'll tell them this lie in order to make this deal. Or, no, that's not the way I'm going to do it. I'm a Christ follower. I'm going to tell them the truth. At the risk of losing the deal, I'm going to tell them the truth. Um, This will probably get some uh, responses. (laughs) The speed limit's 65, or it's not. Okay, but... (laughs) 
See? You ever driven on Ammon? It's 45. <laughs> I'm just saying staying within the speed limit is part of, am I living a life of obedience to the way that Christ would have me to live? Well, the government told me to do other things, and I said no. So <laughs> let's just be real. How far do you take that? Exactly. I know what exactly. you're saying. Though. Okay. Didn't mean and that. then <laughs> from, you know, how we how we talk to our spouse, how we mm. treat our kids, how we complete, how we treat strangers. I mean, there's just literally a, a host of things. And there's the heart that's, that's willing and a heart that's endeavoring to do their best at obeying. We never get it all right all the time. None of us are perfect, but it's, it's the heart that's endeavoring. I want to please God. I want to obey him as my Lord. I want to uh, love him by obeying him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, I do love him. He died on a cross for me. He invited me into a relationship with him. He didn't have to do that. I love him. I want to now show him my love by doing what he's asked me to do. So, It comes down to just a host of ways that we go about living our life. And the concern should be the person who professes to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't don't see them making any effort to live that way unless they get caught and then they, you know, they they act like um, they feel bad for it. But other than getting caught and called on the carpet for it, they're not making any, any effort. Or much of an effort. Yeah. And I think I was sharing that in this message with Zacchaeus. For many people who all they hear is the faith side, the belief side, and they don't hear much about the obedience and work side, um, what I'm finding is that they generally assume, well, the, the, the thing that I'll do now that I'm a Christian is I'll go to church. I'll go to church more frequently than I did. And they think that's sort of the sum total of what it means to follow Jesus. I go to church. I go, that's that's such a small part of it. And even going to church isn't isn't any of it because just being there is not the act of obedience. It's engaging in the worship because you want to lift up God's name in your life. It's it's sincerely bowing your head and engaging in that prayer on behalf of whatever you're praying about it's 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 sitting there with a curious and open mind to receive the truth of God as it's being preached from his word it's it's the desire and thirst to know that's that's what going to church affords but so many people it's no I I'm there that's that's the extent of that's the extent of what they think it means to follow Jesus and it's my least favorite type of person in that category when I know what it is who's that it's husbands that are drugged there by their wife mm-hmm. they would call themselves Christian yeah. they probably are but they have no desire to be there they're probably just thinking about golf <laughs> or something or fishing or hunting and or... I'm just like oh boy <laughs> that gets me that gets me riled up too but this has been a very enlightening podcast about what gets you riled up. I haven't talked to anybody for like oh, a prolonged right? period of time for a while, so I haven't been able to rant. <laughs> I have to have rant or else I just unload. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll be aware of that. Honestly, 
it would turn into quite a podcast. That'd probably get a lot of views. <laughs> but no, I agree. And then also, I think, I know for me, the side of, I guess the legalistic side of things is like, uh, or I guess maybe the negative side of things. What people would consider to be legalistic is guilt is like, guilt is whenever I know, if I don't feel guilty about a thing anymore, I start to get worried and I'm like, oh God, please give me that back. Because mm. now it's like, it, I've lost even feeling bad yeah. about about yeah. blatantly blatantly going against God's law whenever I knew that I was. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. Well, you didn't just sin. You you chose to sin blatantly against God's law. I think that's also a really big distinguishing factor. It's like, no, no, no. You're willingly rebellious. It's not just, oh, it just happened. No, no, no. You willingly did that. Yeah. And so I have to... I think guilt is okay. It's just that guilt can't become an identity, right? Which is kind of the, maybe I'm wrong, but kind of the deciding line between whenever somebody has become so full of shame that it's become almost a part of who they are. Right. Um, Maybe instead of guilt, um, what you're speaking of is conviction. Yeah. When I stop feeling convicted, which I think kind of the, the tone or the indicator of conviction is guilt. Mm-hmm. When I stop feeling that guilt, I'm no longer feeling the conviction. So it would be, it would be cause for me to do an evaluation of, am I permitting the spirit of God to have a voice in my life? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Guilt is the feeling conviction is actually what, what's at play. Yeah. Cause I think that it's, the Holy Spirit doing it, and so, and that oh, so wow, that that's strange. To talk so about. that shows the Holy Spirit being at work, and the Holy Spirit's at work in a genuine conversion. If the conversion's been false, you know, based on a false understanding, then the Spirit hasn't indwelled that person's soul. So then the Spirit's not active yeah. at being able to guide, to teach, and convict. So then that's why there may be reason to good reason to question the sincerity of the profession of faith. Thinking about conviction being an actual thing the Holy Spirit just did to you, right? Like the next time you do something you sh- you know you shouldn't. Think about the fact that in real time God chose to convict you. Yeah. That's strange to think about. Who? That'll change the way you live right there. Um and I think you too. Know, oh, go ahead. So we we talk about walking by the spirit. And I don't think walking by the spirit is only a life of conviction and guilt. No. No. I think he guides and he teaches that's walking by the spirit. But if we are truly in step with the spirit as, you know, Galatians talks about then, yes, conviction real-time by the indwelling presence of God is a real thing, and we ought to pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, that... it. I knew that was the case, but whenever you actually think of it as, like, uh, receiving a text almost, it's like, yeah. oh, no, that happened, like, in real time. God was there. He saw you do that thing. And he did this because he wants you to, like, repent of your ways. Very cool. Yeah, so um, I'm always curious 
like especially if I read biographies of you know people who were um, Christ followers. It's always interesting to me. There seems to be this pattern that if their life has sort of been uh, distinguished as being an enormous influence for the kingdom of God, there seems to be a consistent pattern that those people were quick to respond to conviction in the expression of repentance and like literally stopping what they're doing and changing direction. Whereas the temptation is, okay, yeah, I've, I'm here, I'm sensing the conviction of the Spirit, but you know what, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this. I think in some of the great profiles of um, influential Christ followers that I've read, there seems to be this very, very keen um, sensitivity to the Spirit's convicting work in their life and them, them immediately endeavoring to change and I feel like the more that you quickly respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction, the, almost the easier it gets because I feel like you trust him more almost. Oh, definitely. And so in the beginning, it can be very difficult, and it can feel like much more of a, a sacrifice. Um, well, yeah, because of what the experience of doing it often teaching you is, oh, this is better. Yeah. This is So this is the joy, the fulfillment, the the blessing that comes from obeying because the spirit's leading you in a better way. He's calling you away from this thing that he knows to be harmful or destructive in your life. You may not agree with him because you find pleasure in it, but he's calling you away from that and he's got something better. So the more often and the more quickly you respond to that, you know, repentant movement, then you start realizing, oh, th- this is this is a much better way to live. I, f- I f- literally feel things like joy and peace and hope and and comfort. Um, that's just that's nicer. So but it's you just have like to, an addict. You have to do it enough times to even recognize what it looks and feels like. It's like it's like anybody getting on. It's like everybody who's ever quit something they're addicted to knows that like the first month is. It, it it sucks, yes. right? Very good but call. after that month, you can kind of start to see the light of day more. And then you're like, wow, I can't even believe the difference. Um, granted, it's super easy to fall back into whatever those things are, as many addicts will tell you. But it is just like that. Well, that's why I love your idea of sin so much, because it's the idea of coping. And, and I think addiction kind of just naturally falls into that, that sure. area. Because all of sin, I think, is probably just... A, an addiction to a different coping mechanism. Um, but, but yeah. And so, so there's this balance between faith and works. And so, well, we've strayed again. Well, no, we've been on topic. Are you sure? Yeah. Just in a very roundabout way. Oh, well, we've been on, well, we, 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 we kept talking about God. <laughs> We've been talking about the different expressions of either faith or works, either to the extreme or not. <laughs> so you're funny, but you did say. So I guess close with this. So you did say that it's your deeds more than your beliefs that are going to prove your relationship with Jesus is real. What does that mean? Kind of close us off out with that. 
Again, the only word that I can think of is the deeds are the proof. The, the works that come from my conversion, my regeneration, if it's sincere, the way that it starts producing in me a different way of life is the proof that that faith was sincere. And yeah. so, again, we're not saved by works. Titus, Romans 3, the whole uh, Ephesians 2. Um, but Ephesians 2.10 makes it very clear we were saved for works. It's fully an expectation of God that our life will produce the works of righteousness. Not we get salvation through works of righteousness, but the salvation creates the catalyst, the energy, the impetus for the works of righteousness. Because that's what he wants us to do, is to be expressions of righteousness in our world. Not righteousness as in holier than thou, but the good, the beneficial, the compassion that comes from a life of righteousness. He wants that. And so the salvation that comes by faith makes that possible and then that becomes really the order of my life is to please him in every respect by endeavoring to live in obedience to his word. And my concern in that message as we talked about it and the distance that we create between faith and obedience is that we end up communicating that they're somehow so separate from each other that you don't have to worry about them. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I think Christ is calling us to change and that change isn't just behavioral modification. That change is a transformation of the human heart. And so change looks like something that's different than what I was. So the Christ follower who's lived a life of this way before salvation, they ought to be able to look at the contrast of their life before faith in Christ and after. And yes, those works are generated by the indwelling Holy Spirit um, he gives us the power to do them. He gives us the conviction or the guidance toward them. But then I have a responsibility to know them, to know those things and endeavor to do them as an expression of who I think Jesus is in my life. I think proof's a good word too. I think it was, I think it was Nathan that whenever Jesus reappeared after he rose from the, the grave, was it Nathan that wanted to like see his hands no, or is that just Thomas. a story Thomas, Thomas. Yeah. Doubt, is it doubting doubting yeah. Thomas okay yeah because the name is just up. Thomas yeah I know but... people call him doubting Thomas <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um old doubting but <laughs> it, we don't have to have nails in our hands but Jesus is saying that hey well, you need to live according to what is righteous like, we don't have to prove we don't have to die um to our sins but because Jesus already did that uh, but we do have to, and I think we are expected to, like you said, 
live out and according to who God is and what he's setting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the spirit of what we might call submission or surrender. Yeah. Is willingly bringing ourselves up under the authority and the instructions of Jesus to where I endeavor to live my life in obedience to him. And he's king, right? Yeah, and, and, and so it's interesting. When I was growing up, you would hear discussions a lot about Jesus as Savior, but you didn't always hear the same message about Jesus as Lord. And, and that's part of the, keeping these things separate. And in fact, I don't know if this was so much while I was growing up, but certainly when I was in graduate school, the question of, are you really saved if Jesus is not the Lord of your life? And that's a great question in, in how we understand lordship. And I think lordship is about bringing myself under the authority of Christ and endeavoring to obey him as my king. I don't think that's possible unless the salvation was, in fact, sincere. If he I'd, might break the speed limit from time to time. <laughs> exactly. Right, that he's put in place. But he's not going to kick you out the kingdom for that. But you're still supposed to follow it, right? Right. So don't it's not in on that note. That was a weak <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> so all I was asking for and all I am asking for in a in a genuine curiosity is how do we properly educate a Christ follower to understand that there is a very definite relationship between the works that my life creates as a proof that my faith is sincere. If a person simply acknowledges a set of truths in a very transactional way and says, well, they're basically saying, well, yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die because the option doesn't sound all that great. I want to go to heaven when I die. When I die, so I'll say that I believe Jesus died for my sin. Yeah, people who attack Christianity will often use that as a way to, as a mockery yes. of people who put their faith in Jesus. Yes, but the Christian who says, I'll, I'll, I'll say I believe these things, but then never really pursues them in a diligent fashion is what I'm, what I'm concerned about. Are we misleading people? Mm. Well, if anything... We hope people feel convicted if that's what they they were living. I feel convicted. You feel convicted? Again. I did the first time. <laughs> it's kind of hard to, to talk about those things without because it highlights all the ways that you know you're, oh. you're not, you know? Yeah, and again, there's so many, you know, a relationship with Christ is, is like a diamond. There's so many different ways that you turn it to see the different, know facets of it and so yes there's a fast i can look at the diamond in one way and go wow i'm i I, i'm a sinner it's really true everything i think and do has so much you know depravity in it and then you just you know just turn it ever so slightly and now the light's hitting on a different facet and and there's grace and he knows that 
it's hard and he knows that we are corrupt by nature and he's his grace is sufficient for my failures and then you turn it again and here's a facet of now taking advantage of grace what's that all about why are you doing that and you, and it just it keeps unfolding it's it's the person who gets locked on one facet yeah and doesn't appreciate all of the facets of it that ends up having a an inappropriate understanding of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I'm 60 years old, about to be 61. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was in third grade. So what are you, what, 10? Probably something like that. Something like that. So 50 years of, of you know, being in this, and I, you know, I'd, I'd say 50 years of a relatively concerted effort at understanding, you know, my faith. Um, and it seems like I'm becoming just more and more painfully aware of my depravity. Like I yeah. go, man, I've been at this a long time and I still find this alluring. I still think this is a way to live and not that I... St- think it's the way to live it's just i i pursue it or i allow it i just like but i think at the same time seeing that about myself magnifies what it is to live in the assurance of forgiveness and grace and that my salvation can't be stolen away from me because i failed to toe the line it just seems like the more I'm aware of this one facet of my of the discussion, these other ones become even more incredible in what they are. Well, I even think that for me, it's probably the more that I understand the goodness, righteous, and beauty of Jesus and who God is, the more contrasted the dark, sinful parts of me are. Mm-hmm. Because you, the more you know the good, the more the evil looks so much worse. You're just like, oh, yeah. no, I don't want to go back to that. Like, I know what it's like to live in this this promised land over here, this this goodness. I don't want to go back to that. Right. Right? And so, oftentimes it can sound like, oh, I'm just going to be really harsh on myself. Or I'm even encouraged, like even how I can talk. I'm encouraging people to be harsher on themselves. I'm like, no, no, no. Understand the goodness more. And yeah. then you'll start to feel even this more the same way about right. about this over here. Definitely, I I think there's kind of an unhealthy approach to facing our sin. Yeah, and then I think what you're describing is just fall more in love with Jesus because you you're understanding more of who and how He is. That suddenly you don't want to you don't want to stray from that you don't want to go back